Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace City Online. My name is David Hederman. I'm the teacher and pastor here. Thank you so much for joining us and being a part of our community. Today is our second week studying Psalm 145. And in this psalm, we're learning about the spiritual discipline of praise. Far too often, I think we can think of praise as just kind of, you know, singing a song in a worship service, or we can think of it maybe just maybe the feel-good moments in a worship service, like the band plays a song that we like, or we resonate with a part of a sermon, and we think that's the role, we think that's the function of praise is to kind of encourage us and, and, and give us that, that feeling or that emotion. And to be sure, it does those things, and it can encourage us in times when we greatly needed. And so I'm not diminishing that at all. That is a part of the function of praise in our life. But I would submit to you this, that if you stop there, if that's where you stop and, and, and don't continue anymore, then you're not allowing the spiritual discipline of praise to run its full course in your life. Because it is, it is way more than, uh, than feelings. It's way more than the emotion of a moment. It's something that can run deep, that can encourage, that can sustain, and that can teach us about who the Lord is. And it can even lead to our change and transformation. You see, when David gives us Psalm 145, he models for us the spiritual discipline of praise. And this was something that sustains him throughout his life, no matter what was happening. And we saw this last week, when, you know, when there's, whether it's uh, chaos and suffering and confusion, praise anchors us to his goodness and greatness, and it brings to us uh, hope amidst the heartache. You know, whether it's a season of joy and blessing and victory and triumph, praise once again anchors us to his greatness and goodness and reminds us that every good and praiseworthy thing comes from the Lord. And so that guards us, keeps us from being seduced by uh, false saviors and false hopes that are always trying to win our allegiance or, or win our attention. And so in that way, the spiritual discipline of praise, it sustains us by anchoring us to him and encouraging us with his goodness, no matter what is happening in our life, whether it be good or whether it be bad. But not only does the spiritual discipline of praise anchor us to the Lord, it also teaches us about his character, about his authority, and it teaches us about the work that he does in this world. You see, in the first seven verses of Psalm 145 that we looked at last week, David led us to praise and called us to praise by reflecting on or meditating on or celebrating the stories of God, the stories of God's greatness and how he's worked and how he's demonstrated his character uh, to, to the world around us. And it's in the telling of those stories and recounting what God has done and is doing where we begin to learn about the God that we worship. It's an old preacher's example, but I think it's helpful. If I'm going to praise my wife, April, if I'm going to say I love you, um, then I, I need to be very specific with that, right? Like if I go to April and I say I love you and I think you're beautiful and your blonde hair reminds me of the golden rays of the sun and your eyes are green like emeralds, that's going to go bad for me on multiple fronts. One, that's kind of sappy and that's not really kind of how I roll. But two, it's going to go bad for me because she doesn't have blonde hair or green eyes. She has brown hair and blue eyes. And if I'm going to praise her, I need to be accurate in my praise of her. Otherwise, I'm projecting onto her something that's not real. The same is true in our worship of the Lord. If we're going to praise him, we need to be accurate in our praise and worship of him. So we need to grow in our knowledge of who he is. We need to grow in our knowledge of his character, of his nature, of his attributes, of his values, of the work that he does in this broken and fallen world. We need to grow in our knowledge of these things so that we can rightly praise him. And as we praise him, we grow in our knowledge of these things as well. 
And so it's in Psalm 145.8, as David continues his, his, his psalm uh, in verse 8, he's going to give us a list of four attributes that he's seen and witnessed in the Lord time and time again, and really that have been evidenced throughout the history of, of Israel that have proven true uh, uh, throughout the course of time. And here's, again, when we're growing in our knowledge and our understanding of the character of the Lord. In Psalm 145, verse 8, David says this, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. Now, last week, we, we talked about the transcendence of God and the eminence of God, or the bigness, the eternal nature of God and the closeness of God. The only reason those are comforting to us, the only reason those are comforting is because of the truth of verse 8. We would be terrified of God if he was that big, that eternal, that transcendent, or if he was that involved in our daily life, that close to us, that eminent. We'd be terrified of God if he was legalistic, if he was harsh, if he was quick-tempered, if he was miserly in his love, like we would be without hope, right? We, we would be without hope in this world. We would always be living in terror of what is God going to do next. Verse 8 lets us know we don't ever have to feel that way. The Lord is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. The Lord is gracious. This is God's goodness towards us when we only deserve punishment. It's God's goodness towards us when we only deserve punishment. There are times in David's life where he sins against the Lord and, and against others, and yet God meets him there with grace. And it wasn't giving him a pass for his sin. It wasn't saying, hey, man, what you did really wasn't that bad. It wasn't that wrong. It's really, it's going to be, it, it wasn't that. It wasn't a, hey, that's okay. It was grace given to David in this moment. It was a grace that overwhelmed him to where he responds with confession and repentance, and where he turns from his sin. So when we sin, then that happens way more than we'd care to admit. We don't have to live in fear that God is standing there saying, I knew it. I knew you were going to foul it up. I knew you were going to fall short. I knew you were going to, to make a mess of what I'm giving to you. No, we don't have to live in that fear. We don't have to live under that, um, that, that, that judgment because the Lord is gracious. He's standing there. He's standing there with us encouraging us, picking us back up, letting us know we can rise and go again. It's God's goodness to us when we only deserve punishment. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord is compassionate, merciful. This is God's goodness towards those in distress. And it does go closely with the graciousness of the Lord, whereas grace is, direct, is, is God's goodness directed towards us in the distress of our sin. God's compassion or the mercy of the Lord, it's his love directed towards those who are suffering hardship, who are going through uh, trials, tribulations, who are going through difficulties in life. And, and it's God's goodness towards those because God cares deeply. He's moved by our wounds. He's moved by our trials and tribulations as he is a merciful and compassionate God. The Lord is slow to anger. Notice, notice he still has anger. He still has anger. It's a righteous anger. But nevertheless, he is slow to it as God is patient with his people. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? 
God is slow to anger. He is patient with us. Why? Because he, desire, he desires our repentance. Even when God does express his righteous anger to us, it's still in an effort to lead us to confess, to repent, and to trust in him. David and the nation of Israel, they would experience the anger of God time and time again. And oftentimes that would be the catalyst for them to turn to the Lord who is gracious and compassionate. And they would know that they, continue, they could continue to trust in him as he is their God and as they are his people. They could also do this because God is rich in love. He's rich in love. The love of God leads him to eternally give of himself for the good of others. Uh, David and Israel felt this aspect of God's character because he would routinely give of himself as he acted on behalf of his people, as he acted uh, for their good. This giving and sacrificial love of the Lord given for the good of others, it's also what leads the Lord to give of his son to us for the sacrifice of our sin. Romans chapter five, verse eight, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a generous love. He's not waiting on us to come out of our sin. He's not waiting on us to get our act together. He's not waiting for us to get right. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is a generous love. This is God withholding nothing I mean, from, from pouring out his love, from sending his son, onto, from sen sending his son to act on our behalf. God stops at nothing from pouring out his love onto his people so that we can be restored from our sin, so that our broken lives can be made new, so that we can be brought into the kingdom of God. This one verse Psalm 145.8, it gives us four attributes that are a very succinct description of the character of, of the God that we worship. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. This part of his character, these attributes, this, this nature that God has, it leads him to then, again, work on behalf of his people. And when God works, it leads the people to praise. Uh, that's how David continues, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. So the, the works of the Lord leads to more praise, which then continues to well, it continues to teach us about the Lord, uh, about his character, about his nature, about his attributes, but it also can teach us specifically about his authority. Look how, how David continues. So he's talking about the, the works that God does, leads to our praise. These works also, they tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. This is verse 11, verse 12, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all that he does. Remember, it's King David who has written Psalm 145. And so he knows a thing or two about being a king in a kingdom. And he knows that a king only has authority and dominion within the boundaries of their kingdom. And it was limited to their lifetime. And yet here... David praises God for the glory and splendor of the kingdom of God that is not confined to a ge geographical place, that is not limited by the confines of time. God's kingdom, it is universal and it is eternal. It's timeless and it is unlimited in its power. That's the type of complete and total authority that God has. And since he's gracious, compassionate, 
slow to anger, and rich in love, that's a really, really good thing. I mean, just think of it. Like, if, if he wasn't those things, and he had that type of, and he had this type of complete and total dominion and authority over, you know, for all eternity, then that would be a bad thing, right? Like, if he was, if he was angry or quick-tempered or you know, vindictive, then then we would not want him to have that much authority and dominion. But he's he's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, and he has this type of authority. It is a really good thing that he does. Like, I mean, just, again, if we were to ever have a king or, I guess, president that could be perfectly described in this way, then I would imagine we would never want their term of service to end. We'd want it to be extended again and again because it would be good and we would also live in fear of of what or who could take their place. And so here, David is praising God for his goodness, for his greatness, and the authority that he has with the kingdom of God. And then hopefully you're starting to see some of this stack and build on top of each other. But like, because the attributes, the character of God that we see in verses 8 and 9, and then the authority that we see reflected in verses 11 through 13, because of his nature and character and the authority that he has, then yes, God acts in this world. And when David begins to praise God for the action that he's seen, you and I, as we read Psalm 145, we're taught about the redemptive and restorative work that God engages in this broken and fallen world. So what is it specifically? What's this type of work that God does in and and, and through his kingdom? Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all that he does. God upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. Now we know that because of Christ, this unreservedly applies to our sins. Romans 3, 23 through 24, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Okay, God who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, he provides a way for us to be lifted up out of our sin by the work of God the Son, Christ Jesus on the cross. I mean, this is our hope. Right? This is our trust, and we praise him for this work that he has done, for this expression of love, for this expression of his character, for this righteous act that he has done on our behalf. We praise him for it. And we know, we know about Christ as well, that he is the bread of life who sustains and nurtures the soul. Right, He satisfies the cravings of our heart and soul, and in so doing, we are lifted up, and we are restored into the peace and hope of the kingdom of God. So again, with Jesus, we know this applies to our sin and our secured eternal place in the kingdom of God. But David has written this before the time of Christ. He's written this before Jesus, and yet he's already celebrating this aspect of God's nature and God's character because he's seen this part of God's character on full display throughout his life and throughout the the history of Israel. And he's seen, and here he's testifying, that God who is gracious and compassionate He always sides with the one who's abused. He sides with the one who's brought low. He sides with the one who's overlooked, with the oppressed, with the the persecuted. He hears their cries and he acts on their behalf. He upholds them and he lifts up all who are bowed down. So they too can look to God to sustain them in their season of need and want. 
This is what he's done for Israel time and time and time again because he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. He is righteous in all of his ways and faithful in all that he does. God is committed to righteous and just works in our broken and sinful lives and in this broken and fallen world. When we praise him, we see this. When we praise him, we learn this. When we praise him, we learn about his character, we learn about his authority, and we learn about the actions that he takes in this broken and fallen world. But it's not... we're not gaining knowledge just for the sake of knowledge, right? We're we're not learning these things about God just to learn them. They should transform us and bring about change in our lives. And I believe in this way, praise absolutely leads to change and transformation. Because when you learn this about about God, it's okay. In in light of God's character, in, in light of his attributes, in light of his nature, in light of the authority that he has over me and over this world, and in light of the type of the redeeming work that he is committed to, how then do I need to change the way that I'm living? What changes need to happen in my life? So then let me ask hard questions of me and and hard questions of you then, right? Am am I gracious and compassionate or am I bitter and vindictive? Am I slow to anger or am I quick to rage? Am I rich in love or do I hold it hostage? Do I repeatedly try to rebel against his authority in my life by trying to build my own personal kingdom or do I live my life in full view of the eternal dominion and authority of the kingdom of God? Have I trusted in the actions God has taken to lift me up out of my sin and bring me into hope? Or do I still believe that I can make it on my own? Do I align myself with his restorative and redeeming work that he's doing in this world? Or in my sin, do I contribute to the brokenness and selfishness and fallen nature of the world around me? You see, the spiritual discipline of praise is never meant to stop with just a feeling. It's never meant to stop with with just a a, a moment. It's never meant to stop with just the emotion of a song or a service. And again, those aren't bad. It's part of the process. And those are greatly needed sometimes. Oftentimes that's the doorway that we walk through for this change to happen. But I'm telling you, walk through it. Because if that's where you stop, you're not allowing the spiritual discipline of praise to run its course in your life. And so, we can learn from Psalm 145 that we need to let our praise teach us. Let the praise teach us about the character, about the nature and the attributes of God. Let it deepen our knowledge of him. Let that increase our trust and our hope in the ultimate authority that such a good and gracious and compassionate God has in this world. Let our praise be the catalyst for taking up our role in the righteous and just work that God is doing in this world. Like let our praise make us quick to share the gospel. Let our praise lead us to be quick to show the hope of the gospel with how we love our neighbor. And in this way, I do believe that praise of the Lord leads to transformation as we bring our character in line with his, as we submit our will to his ultimate authority, and as we take up the redeeming work that he is doing in this world. When that happens, then yes, I believe the spiritual discipline of praise leads to our change, to our growth, and to our transformation. Let me pray for us. God, we love you, and we thank you. We thank you for uh, this 
practice. We thank you for the spiritual discipline of praise. And God, we do thank you for those moments where we are encouraged, where we join our voices with one another and we lift them up to you and we are drawn deeper into theology, deeper into who you are. So God, help us do that. Help these not help it not just to be moments that, that feel good in a worship service or, or, or whatnot, but God, let these be doors that we walk through that grow us in our knowledge of you, your character, your nature, um, the authority that you have over us and over the work that you're doing in this world. And God, let that knowledge change us. Let it transform us. God, help us um, to submit ourselves to you. Help us uh, to praise you for being the God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, rich in love, so that, God, we can confess our sin. We can repent of our sin, and we can know that your grace will meet us there, that you lead us into that repentance so that our lives are continually refined into the image of your Son. God, help us engage in the spiritual discipline in such a way that it deepens our trust of you and that it refines our life into your image. God, help us to live the life that you've created and called us to to live. God, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.